0: All right, I'll be reading from Judges chapter 2, verses 6 to 23. It's on page 189. All right, verse 6. After Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them. And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in a land that had been, that had been allotted at timnath Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord and the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshipping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal, and the images of Ashtaroth. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to raiders who stole possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned, and the people were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. Yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshipping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors, who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people, who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the, Lord, but when the, when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshipping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So the Lord burned with anger against Israel. He said, Because these people have violated my covenant, which I have made with their ancestors, and have ignored my commands, I will no longer drive out the nations that Joshua left unconquered when he died. I did this to test Israel, to see whether or not they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. That is why the Lord left those nations in place. He did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer them all. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It's been great to have our three Canadian guys uh, joining us over the last couple of weeks. And they continue to do that for two more Saturdays. And uh, Parker, thanks for uh, writing that blurb for the front and uh, for reading us the word of God tonight. It's been really great to have... uh, Another Canadian accent to add to our own resident reign. <laughs> well, friends, we are now going to look at God's word and I'm going to pray for us. Loving Father, we ask now that you would speak to us by your word, that as we look at the scriptures, you would teach us about who you are and help us to understand how it is that we should respond to you rightly. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A reminder that we have a small outline that's available for you to fill in the blanks. The blanks will appear up on the screen filled in, so why don't you take out a pen and write the word in the blanks, and there's even some things to colour in at the bottom if you'd like, and uh, if you happen to be listening online on our podcasts, you can go to docs.jambrewanglican.com, or even if you're in the room right now, you can download a soft copy of that outline if you want to fill it in on your devices. Well, in many areas of life, it is hard to break the cycle. I can particularly think of the welfare cycle where a parent who survives on government assistance brings up a child in that same environment who then doesn't really know what life is like in a family that's independent of Social Security and sometimes generation after generation are in this environment. To rescue that next generation from poverty means that we need to break the cycle. It's often only when one of those children in that welfare home gets a secure job that they can finally break that cycle and escape that poverty. We see that time and time again. But there are other cycles as well. I have witnessed firsthand the the tragedy of alcohol addiction. You know, the alcoholic tries to manage normal life while they keep drinking heavily. And that is until they experience some sort of stress in life and then they go on a bender and they get completely shattered. Then some sort of intervention happens and that brings them to their senses and they seek help and hopefully they then get clean and maybe they have some counselling. And then they function normally until maybe they decide, well, I can manage my drink. I might just have one or, or two and I'll be fine. And then... They end up drinking daily and then drinking daily heavily and then the cycle continues again and again. And really, it's only possible for an alcoholic to recover fully if the cycle is truly broken because they say, I will never, ever drink again. There are also economic cycles. A country enjoys prosperity with high employment and wages which brings higher tax revenue which then enables government spending on all sorts of things that help bring about a high standard of living. And then we get hit by drought or or fall in commodity prices and, and demand drops and unemployment rises and deficit budgets eventually lead to a recovery, which then starts the cycle again, depending whether you think fiscal policy works at all. The whole cycle could possibly be broken if a government saved a whole lot of money, paid back all the debts, and if the industries diversified so that if one went down, then you'd have all these other strong industries that were still going. Maybe that's the way that the country could break that cycle. Maybe. Now, that's just three cycles. I reckon you could probably think of other ones as well. But the key is, with these three examples, to fix the cycle, we need to break the cycle. Now, in the old book, Old Testament book of Judges, we also see a cycle. We see a cycle of salvation, a cycle of salvation. We see how God's people go from living in peace with the Lord to then fall into a sin and idolatry, and then they are enslaved, and then they cry out to the Lord, and then God raises a judge, and then Israel's delivered, and Israel serves the Lord, and then they go around again. And we see this cycle Around and around and around throughout the book of Judges. But it's not just a cycle that brings them exactly to where they were before. It's actually more of a downward spiral. It's kind of around and then down and then down and then down and then down. Sounds pretty negative and depressing, really. Uh, last week's first chapter in Judges was a bit negative and depressing. And the rest of Judges is a little bit like that too, but not entirely. In fact, I think there's enough in here that will really in, in excite us and re-energise us as we understand how much God really loves us. See, there are many times in the book of Judges that we see the wonderful salvation of God for his people. There are many times when we're reminded how much God just loves us and loves us even though we fail and fail and fail. This helps us know more about God's character and the fact that He is just so utterly trustworthy. And it all sets us up, really, for the one who will eventually break the cycle, and that is Jesus. The book of Judges is sort of a blueprint for the final great building of the kingdom of God that we'll see in due course through Christ. Well, today we're looking at chapter 2, verse 6 through to chapter 3, verse 11. And we're going to see this whole cycle of the book of Judges in full rotation. And this will help us understand the action-packed stories of Judges that will follow in the coming weeks. The next few weeks we're going to see all these ripper yarns about what has happened amongst God's people. Ehud. You've got to check out Ehud next week. It's a hoot. Uh, Then we've got Deborah, and we've got Gideon, we've got Samson, we've got Micah. All these different people in different situations. They all sort of fit somewhere on this cycle of salvation which we'll come to in the coming weeks and we'll see how God keeps that cycle going around and around even though we don't deserve it at all well verse 6 of chapter 2 begins with mention of Joshua which is a bit weird we read after Joshua sent the people away each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Uh, That's nice, except for the fact that at the start of chapter 1 from last week, it said, after Joshua died. It's like, huh? How does that work? It seems that really the chronology, the, the way that the history is sort of put together, seems to be all weird it is weird but it's actually the way that storytelling happens today you know if you see a um, kind of one of those reality tv shows if you watch it carefully you'll see that it will often have a pause and then it'll rewind and tell you what just happened and then last week this happened then it'll start again and it'll come back and back and forth and the timing is back and forth and you get used to it so often if there's a show that has commercial breaks After the break, they will sometimes recap what happened just before it. And you're thinking, hang on, you've already showed me that. Well, that's just the way that stories are told. And I think what we've got here in the book of Judges is we've got a chronology that's basically just normal storytelling. So you're reading it along and, uh, I mean, what really happens here in chapters 2, verses 6 and onwards, it's a sort of a big picture summary of what happened last week and the bits at the end of the book of Joshua as well. And above all, though, it helps us understand the cycle of judges. Verses 6 and 7 are pretty positive, but after Joshua dies, things get bad real fast. Verse 10. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. You might read that and say, oh yeah, righty what's next? But you need to just stop and have a look at this. A generation grew up after Joshua who didn't acknowledge the Lord or remember what he'd done. All the evidence of God's kindness to them forgotten. And they wouldn't acknowledge him as their loving ruler. See, this is what it looks like when people turn away from God. Often when people turn away from God, it's often just a drift. Many people grow up in a Christian family with a mum and a dad maybe who, who loved Jesus. And then sometimes those kids grow up and they just sort of take for granted that the nice home that they lived in is just what is normal and they don't think that it had anything to do with following Jesus. They forget the Lord and then they grow up and no longer acknowledge him as their ruler and king. And so you'd think that that's too bad, too sad, game over, you can never come back to God. But the book of Judges reminds us that there's hope for you if you want to come back. Maybe this has been your own personal story, that you wandered away from God and something has brought you back. Or maybe you're still wandered away from God and you just think about maybe returning to him. Don't doubt that he'll accept you. But as we read about this, we need to consider the importance of remembering the Lord. One of the first songs that we taught our kids was the song that we did tonight, the Colin Buchanan song. You know, when your dad is crusty and your mum's in a flap and you spill the custard in your sister's lap, remember the Lord. Remember that he is in control. He's watching his children. He cares. Remember the Lord. It was one of the many songs we taught them and it was one of the many things we wanted them to know, that he's in control, that he cares. And I needed to make sure that happened because as a parent, I'm responsible for telling my kids about the Lord. Parents are responsible for telling their kids about the Lord. In an earlier book of the Bible, in Deuteronomy, it's a very famous verse about the importance of mums and dads telling their kids about the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 6 6-9 says, And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands I'm giving you today, Repeat them again and 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 again again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them on your hands, wear them on your forehead as reminders, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You could fill in examples. For modern-day life in the Illawarra, you know, just make sure that you just can't stop talking about the Lord. That, thats the job of parents. Make your spiritual life natural, and your natural life spiritual. Whenever your kids ask questions about the Lord and about life, answer them. Well, we've had some terrific long car trips, and, and sometimes we've just been out on a road trip, and someone's asked some question about something, and. We've spent an hour or two just talking about God and life and why did that happen to a good person and, and all these sorts of stuff. And I, I, I hope that when those questions come up for you, you don't say, I don't know, ask your mother. I, I hope there's a thing there's a where you'll say, let's talk about that, let's explore it. And I don't know all the answers, but let's get into it. Because dads, I'm particularly talking to you now because you and I, we have a particular responsibility to make sure this happens. You know, we might defer a fair bit of it to our our wives, but we still need to be the ones responsible for making sure it happens. We've got to make sure our kids remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. And I think this is one of the reasons that we want to keep bringing them along to church. So right now, as we speak, Julie and Mandy and others are over there teaching our kids to remember the Lord. Right now, you brought them here and we're helping them learn. And then after dinner, Rain and Matt and the team are going to be teaching the teenagers to remember the Lord. And, and together right now we're learning to remember the Lord. And one of the things when we come together for church is we will often have special things that are just a bit different. Like Christmas or Easter. Yeah, For God's people in the Old Testament, they didn't have Christmas and Easter. They had most significantly the Passover meal. Uh, it had a job. And that was to train the kids. I don't know if you thought about that before. Exodus 12 said, "Then your children, when you do these Passover thing, you eat the unleavened bread and the, and the lamb with all the seasoning and stuff, the kids will ask, "What does this ceremony mean?" And you will reply, "Dads, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt. And though he struck the Egyptians, he spared our families. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt. They went out after other gods, worshipping the people around them, and they angered the Lord. Uh, You see, what we have here is they will ask the question, and the Israelite kids will be reminded of the importance of keeping their, their minds full of the Lord, remembering the Lord. Well, things have gone bad to worse. They haven't actually remembered that. And I skipped and I read something earlier that I needed to start reading now, in fact, because this is out of Judges 2, because this is what happens when they don't remember. See if you can notice my little slip up there. But have a look at Judges chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This is the bad news when they forget God. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and they served the images of Baal. It's another God. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who'd brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshipping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. Not only have they started to worship other gods, that's a bad thing, if you're wondering, they've also done evil in the sight of the Lord. It's it's kind of a special kind of evil. It's an absolute evil. It's an evil that God considers to be evil. You know, every society has its own rules about what it considers to be right and wrong. You go to some other cultures that are very different to the Australian culture, and they will say that some of the things we do are immoral. And we may say the same thing about other cultures as well. It's like, I can't believe that they think that that is okay. Even our own society will drift, won't it? Attitudes that we had 50 years ago, 50 months ago, they will change. And we'll now say something that was bad is good and something that is good is bad. You know, we 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 now have the majority view in Australia that the greatest evil is is intolerance and, and not immorality. It's funny, we've shifted in such a big way. The goalposts have moved and we redefine evil. But God doesn't change his mind about what is evil and what is good. This is why we can take comfort in God's word, the Bible. It gives us absolute truth about what is right, what is wrong, what is evil, what is not. And we read here in Judges 2.11, they did evil in the Lord's sight. No doubt. Absolute evil. But God's standards, unlike the standards of the world, are absolute and timeless. God's standards are absolute and timeless. Ultimately, we need to please God, not man. The people in the time of judges have done evil in the sight of God. They've pleased the wrong person, really. Uh, they, they should have pleased God. And because of this, we read what happened, verse 14. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel. Don't skim over that, friends. God is really, really angry. Notice that Uh, the Lord experiences emotions and the emotion he experiences here is anger. Sometimes we think that God doesn't actually experience emotions and that is because we think that emotions mean that you need to be passive or subject to the actions of others. You see if I'm sitting here happily and, and a tragedy happens right there somewhere in front of me. I will be affected by that. I I will have an emotional response to that. You, by doing something evil, will actually change me, will affect me. I will have an emotional response to that. And what we try and say is we don't want God to be kind of influenced in that way by this world. But, you know, if we think that, then we, we better throw out the fact that God feels love as well. Because if you can't look at someone who is in trouble and then feel love for them then you can't have, that means you don't have any emotions at all. I think we need to believe in a God who feels anger. We need to believe in a God that feels anger. He feels anger but he does not sin. This is important. His response is perfectly right and perfectly just. There are times when it's wrong for us to feel anger. And if you have anger all the time, then maybe you need to seek some help to manage that anger. I think that's a genuine issue. But there is an anger that is just. There is an anger that is right, and the Lord has it. I think it's the kind of anger that someone has when when their husband or wife commits adultery. It is a natural anger. And it's a right anger. Because a covenant, a promise of marriage has been broken. And it's right for that person to feel angry. And so the Lord feels angry because that's kind of exactly what's happened. He made a covenant with them, a promise. He says, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will give you this land as a sign of my blessing to you. And all you've got to do is obey me. And what do they do? They say, pfft get lost and they disobey him and they don't remember him and they serve other gods and so we see what happens second half of verse 14 and so the Lord handed them over to raiders who stole their possessions he turned them over to their enemies all around and they were no longer able to resist them God has judged his own people And the result is that they now lose the battles that they fight with others. When in the past, they would always win. But there's something more than that that happens. Verse 15. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress. This is not just God letting them get smashed up by the bad guys. This is God smashing up his people. That's pretty full on, isn't it? I don't know how that makes you feel when you respond to the fact that God is turning on his own people that he loves, the own people that he has made this promise with. But this is an accurate view of God's attitude to rebellious people. And it's not just the, the grumpy God of the Old Testament, as some might my people say. It is the consistent God of now, as much as then. Because God has every reason to be angry at his people. Rightly so. His anger is a measured, proportional response. A response from God who is full of justice. God said... I will look after you. I will give you a land, having taken you out of Egypt where you were absolutely smashed up in horrible situations under slavery. I'll rescue you. I'll take you to this land that I'm giving you. So just just obey me. But they don't. They've disobeyed him. They've turned away from him and they've told him to get lost. And so now they have received what. He said he would do. He's kept his word. And they are now in great distress. You see, we need to get our heads around this as people who live in the age of the New Testament. This is still relevant to us today. We've got to know the justice of God. We've got to know that it is right for him to be angry at rebellion. Because it's only when we understand his justice that we can then understand his mercy. And so with this in mind, we now see the next stage of the cycle I talked about. Verse 16, The Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers. God, who was full of mercy, showed grace to his people by raising up judges. Now we think of a judge as being someone who's kind of like Judge Judy or whatever and in a courtroom with a funny white hat and a hammer that goes, you know, Guilty and, or not guilty and all that. You know, yes, your honour, no, your honour. You know, somebody who's, who's done something wrong they've been dragged in there by the police and now they're being seen if they're actually guilty of the crime that's been accused against them. That's not exactly what a judge was in the Old Testament. They're kind of more like a, a leader who just managed the people in all sorts of different ways, including the idea of, of bringing justice, of course. They are God's people Helping God's people know justice and right and wrong. And in the end, their leadership is a gift of God. It's an act of God's grace. They cry out in great distress and what does God do? He sends them a judge. It's a funny old way of God answering a prayer. Well, maybe it's not. That's what he's done. And God did that before they even said sorry They're really, really upset. They haven't said, sorry, God, or we might come back to you, God, or please forget the bad stuff we did. It's just like, we're really, really sad. He's like, okay, I'll have mercy on you. It's extraordinary what we see here. But even though that's the case, and God gives them a judge, they don't listen to the judge. They don't listen to the one who will lead them out of this darkness. Verse 17, yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshipping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors who'd walked in obedience to the Lord's command. They said to God, get lost. I don't want you, don't care what you've done in the past, don't even know what you've done in the past, I've forgotten if you even told me, get out of my life, don't want a thing to do with you. And so God, what does he do? He shows mercy yet again. Verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. See, through the judge, God's people were rescued. And it all happened because the Lord took pity on his people he saw that they were in pain from the punishment that he was afflicting on them, which he deserved, which they deserved. And so, in seeing them in their distress, he was upset. And so he then said, I will put pity on them. God is no unmoved mover. He has genuine emotions and he feels genuine pity and sadness for the suffering of his people. You know, if you've ever wondered whether or not God really does show love for us, here's one of those bits where we see it. He sees us in our pain, he sees us in our anguish, and he has pity on us. It's not like God rescues us, sort of like those those kind of um, hired mercenaries who you pay them enough money and if there's a hostage situation in the Middle East, they'll go in and you give them enough cash, they'll risk their life and they'll bust into that hostage and they'll take out the people and all that. It's not like that at all. It's more like a dad who risks his life and gives his possessions in order to rescue his child at great cost. God's rescue of us is heartfelt. It's heartfelt. Do you need to change your view of God? Do you need to see him as he really is? A God who is rich in mercy... Do you need to feel the love of God the the love that he feels for you? Cuz you just imagine at this point now that the people would see this and go, "Oh boy, we have really messed up. We've got to come back to the Lord." But no. Verse 19 When the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshipping them, and they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. It's very sad. God is angry, rightly, with his disobedient people, and now he has a response to them. Verse 20, the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he said, Because these people have violated my covenant, my promise, which I have made with their ancestors and have ignored my commands, I will no longer drive out the nations that Joshua left unconquered when he died. The punishment now is that they will no longer be going into a place that God has removed the people from. It's a bit like picking up the keys to the house that you're going to move into from the estate agent. And turning up, unlocking the door, and there's 20 people living in it. You think, didn't expect that. You think, what do I do? It's like, can't do anything. You're just going to have to find a spot on the couch. It's like, do these keys not mean anything? No, just you've got to coexist. Get over it. Really? I thought I bought No, not really. We, God's people now in this situation, they have to go and coexist in the land that they've been given, that they own, that they've got the keys to. See, God led his people out of slavery so they'd have the promised land and he said he'd drive out their enemies and they started to, but the people said, God, get lost. And now God has, in a sense, answered their prayers. You want me to go away? Fine. I'll leave you to it. But why didn't God just drive out all the nations much earlier on? There was a reason, though. Verse 22, 23, I did this to test Israel, to see whether or not they would follow the ways of the Lord as their ancestors did. That is why the Lord left those nations in place. He did not quickly drive them out or allow Joshua to conquer them all. He did this, friends. He he did this because he wanted his people to show their obedience. He didn't want them just to be robots who would just say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. I'll do what you say, Lord. It's like I, he wanted them to have a genuine choice. Having had all this love and kindness and mercy and grace shown to them, you'd think they'd say, You, you have saved us and we are forever grateful. You know, kind of like you think they'd expect that to, to come to God and say, Oh, we love you for what you've done. But instead they say, We hate you. We're going to go to another God. Thanks. They failed. They rejected their ruler and now they have broken relationship with him. You see, this is what sin is ultimately about. People think that sin is just doing bad stuff. But ultimately, sin is about crushing the heart of God. See, these guys broke the rules that God put there, but ultimately they broke God's heart. They broke his heart. And that is why God was angry you know, one of the most beautiful stories that Jesus told was the story of the prodigal son. God has two sons, or the, the, the father, sorry, in this story, where we understand to be God has these two sons. And one of them says, Lord, Father, I want to take away my possession and I basically want to treat you like you're dead. And we, we see here that the heart was broken, not just about disobeying the rules. It was a relational break. And this is what we see right here. We were loved by God but we rejected him and he has every right to be angry with him. See, people will, will say, I don't believe in hell, I don't think it could exist, I don't think it would be possible that God will create a place where there would be so much sadness. But I think that's because people don't understand just how badly we have treated God and how his heart of justice requires him to have a proportional response to our sin against him. And we see that unfolding in these last little bits of today's passage, Judges 3 verse 5. We see now that the people of Israel lived among all these places, the Canaanites, Hittites, uh, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites and they intermarried with them. Israelite sons married their daughters and Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons and the Israelites served their gods. They just blended in. See, God wants his people to be different to others, to be different to others, not just to blend in. And one of the ways that people have done that and rebelled against him is by marrying people who don't love God. Time and time again in the Old Testament, we see examples of just this happening, where people have loved people who don't love God. And everything's gone pear-shaped. We see a similar reminder to us in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 6, we read, Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? And I, friends, I think that there's an obvious application to us. And that is that we should choose a spouse who shares your love of the Lord. If it's the number one thing in your life to follow Jesus, find someone who shares that love. Because too often, when that's not the case, the person who once loved God, when they marry someone who doesn't, they stop loving God. If you're married to someone now and you're a Christian and they're not, you just stay where you are. Pray for them, live a good life among them, and God willing, they will come to share what you love, and that is the Lord. But you can see why it is that this intermarrying and so on in the Old Testament is the kind of thing that led to so much destruction. Well finally we see a story about Othniel I'm just not going to say much I'm just going to read it a few verses. When the people of the Lord cried out to the Lord for help the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them his name was Othniel the son of Caleb's younger brother Kenaz the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he became Israel's judge He went to war against King Cushan Rishathame of Aram and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him and so there was peace in the land for 40 years and then Othniel son of Kenaz died. All this little story just tells us that one man brought peace to God's people. This is how God has done it time and time again. One man bringing peace to God's people. There was one man who brought peace to God's people who lived many years later than that. And that was Jesus. In love, Jesus took God's anger upon himself. Jesus didn't deserve to have God be angry with him. But all of the anger that we have seen God pour out on his people for their rebellion against him, instead, has been diverted to Jesus instead of us. You want to see the glory of the cross, you want to see the greatness of salvation. It's when you recognize that all of the anger of God has gone upon Jesus instead of us. This is why this book of the Bible gives us such an insight into the mercy of God. And so with this I want to close Ephesians chapter 4 verse 4 chapter 2 verse 4. But God who is so rich in mercy loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Let me pray. We thank you our Heavenly Father for your mercy. We know that our sins they are ma- many. But your mercy is more. May we hold on to this and, and take refuge and, captive, and, and, and re- refuge and comfort in the cross of Christ knowing that it is there that we know your mercy. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.